This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is the final part in our four-part series on politics and comedy. I've been speaking to people who write jokes about politicians and asking whether there was a serious point to being funny about the people who run the country. After talking to comedians about how they take on politicians, today we turn to the perilous moments when politicians try their hand at comedy. I'm delighted to be joined by The Times' Daniel Finkelstein, who's written jokes for politicians for more than 25 years. James McGorry, who was an advisor to Nick Clegg, and Aisha Hazariko, who wrote jokes for Ed Miliband and Harriet Harman. So, over the next um, half an hour, it's an, it's, you know, this is a safe space. We can all share our stories about what it's like writing jokes for politicians. Good jokes who've died at the hands of your boss. And uh, maybe there's been bad jokes which have suddenly taken off. So who wants to start first on the... What makes a good joke for a politician? If you have make a joke, you need to make sure that it's started and finished quickly because the worst kind of jokes are ones that go on for about 10 minutes and then finish with a punchline that isn't funny. Uh, and probably the worst moment of my life in professional terms was sitting in an audience where Brian Mawinney and Michael Heseltine took a parody manifesto that I'd written about the Labour Party and read out bits and the journalists in the audience were understandably completely silent as they read it (laughs) and at the end Michael White said I just want to ask whether this is the worst press conference ever held by a political party and I was actually standing in the audience thinking somebody's going to work out that I wrote this and tomorrow I'm going to be in the paper Britain's unfunniest man so there's nothing worse I think than sitting there when your joke has just completely died that was a very awful moment James, I've had a similar experience. Uh, Now, we should be clear that Nick Clegg is known by even his closest friends and colleagues as being a man who can strangle a perfectly good joke to death. (laughs) He's a funny man in in, in person, but with a scripted gag, he will find new and ever more imaginative ways to uh, make a hash of it. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes on stage, uh, sometimes on television, sometimes just uh, while he's rehearsing. I had a very similar experience to uh, Daddy's once. Uh, We're doing when the Tour de France came to Yorkshire, the the Tour de Yorkshire, there was like a big black tie gala dinner at at, at the start, and we'd written him a few few jokes, as always. And one of them was, I thought, quite good, which was uh, the hills of 
of York with the hills of Yorkshire, there'll be more highs in it than Lance Armstrong's kit back. And it was quite controversial at the time. So we tried it out on a tried it out on on a guy, and he said, "This is this is this is this is fun. That's a really funny joke. Really funny joke." Clegg delivered it. Audience of a thousand people actually managed to to, to get it out of his chops uh, without without butchering it. And um, deathly silence in the room. It was clearly too soon for a Lance Armstrong gag. However, one lo- voice laughed uproariously, and I turned around to see it was the guy who I'd uh, previewed the joke with, who told me it was all going to be fine. In fact, um, podcast fans will know that last year I interviewed Nick for the podcast and asked him about his inability to, to tell a joke, and he, he brought up exactly oh. that story. And so even he recalls it. Margaret Go Thatcher on. was the worst person for doing this, and I know that she was given the joke about the dead parrot. She'd never heard of the dead parrot, and she was going to make a joke about the Liberal Democrats being the dead parrot, and she was shown it many, many times to show that it was funny. She still didn't get it. She agreed to deliver it. And just before she went on, John Whittingdale has told me this has definitely happened, she turned around to John Whittingdale and went, John, Monty Python, is he one of us? <laughs> and he knew that she was about to go on, so she just said yes. <laughs> Don't start getting into what sort of circus is this? What about you, Aisha? You've uh, written jokes for lots of Labour politicians. Lots of What's people. the worst? Let's get it out of the okay, way first. Okay, we'll do the worst one. So I always remember writing this joke um, when I was working for Ed Miliband. And it was something in, it was for PMQs and it was something about Ken Clark causing trouble for David Cameron. And we wanted to get a sort of a punchline, which is like, you know, you want to tell Ken Clark to get his kind of tanks off your lawn. And then for some reason... I was like, why don't we insert the word hush puppy instead? <laughs> because Ken Clark wears hush puppies. And we all went, oh. And just Ed saying the word hush puppies in Ed's voice did sound quite funny. So he goes into the chamber, does the gag, it completely so dies. What, what the gag was, Ken's got to get his hush puppies, puppies off your lawn. Off it your was lawn. Like, Ken's got to get his you know, hush puppies off your lawn. <laughs> and the whole thing just like died such a horrible death. Everyone was looking at me in the press gallery. I was so embarrassed. And then for, for forevermore, when I worked for Ed, every time I came up with a slightly rubbish gag, he'd just look at me and go, Aisha, two words, hush puppies. <laughs> I, can I just say in brackets that I was, in fact, the kid with the tank on the lawn that Ken Clark originally attacked. So just a little historical note. Oh. There, there we are. <laughs> Only connect. OK, so we've got the worst ones out of your system. What, which is the joke that you're most proud of, that landed best and really, um, you know, did did the business? Brought, brought, people were crawling around, rolling on the floors, rolling in the aisles. James? I, I wrote a couple for Nick at a press gallery lunch that I was quite pleased with. Uh, one was, uh, say what you say about Chris Hune, but there's no politician better at getting his points across. Uh, <laughs> That's a good joke. Me. But something of a career highlight was it was uh, at the time when the Ryan Giggs story and the affair he had with his brother's wife was in the... Uh, was in the papers, and so I did a classic show and reveal gag, which Nick nailed for once, which was uh, about Ed, comparing him to Ed Miliband, and one's a fading left-winger who's got problems with the press and shafted his brother, and the other's read Ryan Giggs. <laughs> That's a good joke. <laughs> and Paige lead in the sun. Well, there we are. That's probably the most that Nick's ever had, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, certainly yeah. the best coverage we've ever had. <laughs> Aisha, what about your best joke? Uh, the best joke... I did was with Harriet and it was the first time she ever did Prime Minister's Questions and the setup was absolutely disastrous because she was up against William Hague, famed for his wit <laughs> and 48 hours before PMQs, Harriet decided to put a stab vest on as she went for a wander around her constituency so it was horrific the lead up was horrendous your <laughs> colleagues in the lobby were ringing me up going six nil six nil it's going to be a wipeout so we anticipated that um, William Hague would do something about the stab vest 
So we came up with a rejoinder, which was something along the line. And he did, true to form, he, he had a go about the stab vest. And we came up with a line, which is, you know, when it comes to taking fashion advice, we're not going to take any from the guy in the baseball cap. And it just worked an absolute treat because ev- no one expected Harriet Harmon to be able to make a joke. And it was the first time a woman had been at this dispatch box since Thatcher doing PMQs. So it was like a really big moment and she absolutely nailed it. And it literally made every news outlet and every newspaper the next day. It was <laughs> Harmon makes joke. And But she was actually, the, the, the perception of her is probably a bit unfair because some of her party conference speeches... One of the ones I really remember, I think it was Labour Party Congress in 2012, where she was she made several jokes about Fifty Shades of Grey, which is unusual territory for a politician to go into. Now, as it happens, I have actually read Fifty Shades of Grey for research purposes, you understand. <laughs> but I have to say, I don't think it's very realistic, because, let's be honest, what most women want is not a man who ties you to the bed, but one who unstacks the dishwasher while you watch the Great British Bake Off. Am I right? <laughs> Which was sort of ticking off zeitgeist left, right and centre. It was sort of countering the idea of Harriet Harm person in this sort of... It was, it was, a, was that one of yours? Yeah, that was... We, we, had, we had great fun with that. The reason that came about, actually, we had a lobby lunch and someone rather cheekily asked her... Um, have you ever read Fifty Shades of Grey? And, um, you know, we kind of knew this was going to be, the, this was the sort of zeitgeist book and everyone was going to have a bit of fun with her on it. So we thought we'd better own it. We also had another joke that went with it about how there was a story of um, a, a young innocent who was like led astray by a slightly older kind of malevolent character who was very dominating and controlling, but that was enough about the coalition agreement. <laughs> <laughs> So, Danny, what, was, what about yours? What was Probably, your best? Well, working for William Hague on Question Time was, and uh, George Osborne always used to describe it as like taking free kicks for Beckham because he is so brilliant at them himself. But I suppose the most successful one was when Frank Dobson and Ken Livingstone were contesting the mayoral election, and he said, um, "You're going to have two. You can have. I'll solve your problem. You can have two candidates for mayor. You, Frank Dobson can be uh, your mayor during the day, and Ken Livingstone can be your nightmare." Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was probably his most successful. I think the most single single most successful conference joke was of all in Congress people for Michael Howard uh, when he was standing down as leader of the party he said uh, I know it's not normal for a uh, leader to say who they want their successor to be uh, but I'm actually proposing to break with convention and I'm going to tell you who I think should be the next leader of the opposition and there was total silence someone actually shouted out no in the audience <laughs> and then he paused and just said Gordon Brown <laughs> uh, and that was that was probably the most successful in terms of setup uh, and just because it was him uh, in terms of the joke the thing about writing for William Hague he got a reputation for doing them and I didn't mind giving him jokes that then he got the reputation for delivering but there was a comedian called Bob the Cat Bevan who was then quoted in the Sunday Times as having written all of his jokes. And he got a list of all these jokes, each of which I had actually written. <laughs> and, and, they were, and they were all ascribed to this guy, this comedian. I'm sure it wasn't his fault either, but it was extremely irritating. I don't mind, you know, we all do it because we know the leader. of the, and, it's, and it's the convention, that, you know, now years have passed and these people are, you know, not doing their jobs anymore. We can say that we were responsible for them. But while they're in office, you don't do that. Uh, and um, yet, it was a bit annoying to have someone else in time. Now, P- PMQs is a such a particularly odd setup. Anyway, the sort of level of expectation, this cauldron of noise that 
people have. And you have, I mean, particularly because William Hague was so good at it. Modern expectations are that, that a good joke is what's needed to really skew. I mean, dis- despite the lack of impact on William Hague's ultimate election success uh, afterwards. Is there a particular type of joke that you need for PMQs? It's the, the one-line put-down is king. The, the topical one-line put-down is king. Done well, there's no, there's, there's, there's no better. And especially if you can do it in response to something. It's always better if it is as a rejoinder. I think in PMQs, um, just the cut and thrust of the jokes, it's better to have somebody attack you and be prepared with a sort of witty comeback. That always kind of works the best. I remember um, uh, David Cameron had attacked Ed about something to do with his sort of student days or something like that, being sort of worthy and earnest and a Marxist at, at university. And Ed just like waited for the noise to subside because everyone was like, yeah, zinger. And then he came back with a really good line about, well, at least I wasn't going around like trashing restaurants and like, you know, throwing bread rolls at waiters and stuff like that. And again, we had prepared it, but it just looked generally quite off the cuff. Well, that not that the key thing is that jokes are supposed to be spontaneous. And the art of being a stand up is to sound like all of this has just occurred to you. And isn't it brilliant how funny and sparky I'm being? And the trouble is with a lot of politicians jokes is this, this sort of, oh, God, it's coming. Everyone's sort of slightly <laughs> tenses because they can see, as yeah. you were saying, Daddy, it being flagged a mile off. And then the punchline doesn't then justify the build-up to it. So the most I think one of the most successful jokes William Haig used once was saying to Tony... Tony Blair, uh, you can have a look at it in the red, and it was a treasury question, you can have a look at it in the red book, or in your case, and he threw it across the unread book. And it, you know, that is a very, very, very simple joke. In the circumstances that Blair obviously never saw his own budgets, and everyone knew that in the house, it was knowing, and it was over very quickly. In a conventional set, you know, um, Ken Dodd isn't going to finish the exact <laughs> with that joke. But in a conventional, uh, so in a conventional sense it doesn't work, but in the house it did because it, it was snappy and if you build up to the joke you lead people to expect it's coming (laughs) or you use a terrible uh, pun um, then (laughs) although the the one sort of brilliant turn that sort of um, bucks that trend was William Hague doing that brilliant sketch and it literally was like a sketch about the horror um, of Gordon Brown discovering that Tony Blair was the new kind of European president. As the name of Blair is placed in nomination by one president af- and prime minister after another, the look of utter gloom on his face, <laughs> the nauseating glutinous praise oozing from every head of government, <laughs> the rapid revelation of a majority view agreed behind closed doors when he was as usual excluded. <laughs> Never would he regret more no longer being in possession of a veto. The famous... <laughs> The famous drop jaw almost hitting the table as he realises there is no option but to join in. And then the awful moment when the motorcade of the President of Europe sweeps into Downing Street. The gritted teeth and bitten nails. The Prime Minister emerging from his door with a smile of intolerable anguish. The the choking sensation as the words Mr President are forced out of his mouth. And then... Then, once in the cabinet room, the melodrama of when will you hand over to me all over again. <laughs> that is all him, by the way. So the, 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 that's the thing about working with William Hague on 
jokes, which uh, Rory Remnell was used to say that on a Wednesday morning he would get together with his team and they would discuss what was happening in politics and William would get together with his team and make jokes. And that was actually really <laughs> true. Um, and, right, you know, thinking of funny things, lots of things that we could... I mean, I remember... Robin Cook creating an ugly scene in a room all by himself was one that we William refused to use. <laughs> but the, um, but the, there were lots that um, we couldn't use, but it was great fun working on jokes with him. I always thought that would make a brilliant compendium of uh, jokes that were vetoed by uh, politicians or more likely like the most senior members of staff were like, you absolutely cannot say that, it's offensive, it's insulting. Uh, that, that but would but be, probably that crackers, that's the, that's the problem, but, but, but not right for a senior politician to make. But yeah. also, I think the mistake that often senior politicians make is, and we've probably all had this as advisors, it's like someone's going in to do a speech and you get a text going, can you just text me in a gag? And it doesn't work because you can get... You can, I've got loads here in this yeah, drawer. Let me just, you know, and the thing that makes a good joke is, um, as well as it being a funny joke and a short set-up and a, a zingy punchline, it's got to be authentic to that person's voice and that person's politics. The best political jokes have sort of got a kind of ring of political truth, which is why they work. Well, I was going to ask you about that, because actually the ones that are most damaging... Cause you can, there were lots of sort of lame jokes politicians use, but some of them are really damaging. The one that immediately springs to mind is Vince Cable's mm. joke about Gordon Brown's transformation from Stalin to Mr Bean, which, again, uh, as you were saying, Danny, no actual comedian is going to use that because it's a bit lame, but it, it rings true that Vince Cable would use Mr Bean as a, as a topical, not particularly up-to-date reference, but it also totally spoke to a truth about Gordon Brown, and that was why it was so wounding. Yeah, I remember the, what, the PMQ joke that I remember more than any was um, Ed Miliband was having a go at Cameron over the coalition and how him and Nick were fighting over X, Y, Z. And Cameron's riposte was immediate. And it was one line. Well, it's, it's not exactly like we're brothers. And it just spoke volumes to the prejudices that people already held about Ed Miliband that he shafted his brother. And the, that was but done in a funny way. And the other thing is you've got to pander to your audience, which in the room are the benches behind you. And if they go wild for a joke and the other lot are sat stony-faced, you know you've got a winner and that will be reflected on TV and in the copy that people write. By the way, that, 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 it's interesting you mentioned that joke. So originally... Was it uh, really, one of yours, Originally it was a joke, actually, that was... It wasn't even just by me. It was used, actually, in party conference by George Osborne about uh, his relationship with Vince Cable. And it said everyone thought we'd be really arguing. They'd be at each other's throats. We'd be trying to kill each other. Who do you think we are, brothers? Um, and um, David then reused it. And interestingly, um, it worked a second time. So um, the... the It's almost like people weren't listening to the conference. <laughs> well, one of the things about you can do is use, you know, reuse the material. That is better than uh, in the right atmosphere it can totally work better than thinking of something original yeah. that then is um, you know a flop so that is a really good example of the the power of a of a good joke and a put down and how important pmqs is in terms of your political management so i was actually away that week and ed had tried to sort of do a bit of a joke it was actually about the eu it was something to do with the eu and it was some about some weird like late night phone call it was a very weird <laughs> eu thing as eu things always are and I remember Ed's team ringing me and saying, um, we've got this joke, like, do you think it sounds OK? And I was like, it kind of sounds OK. None of us, and we were all at fault, we should have anticipated just Cameron coming back with the, this devastating line. And it was so wounding to Ed, and it was so 
wounding to the whole thing. I had a story briefed out that I had been sacked because that joke <laughs> was so bad. I was in hospital recovering from something and my phone starts going mad. It's going, you've been sacked from EM from Ed's PMQ's team because of that David Cameron joke. And then there was talks of like a leadership crisis. I mean, there's always a talk of a leadership crisis in the Labour Party. But I mean, that shows you the power of a, a kind of a, a put down. Yeah. Another one that, that really stuck in my mind, because I remember it was so good at the Labour Party Conference, I think it was Tony Blair's last party conference as leader, and there'd been a lot of, obviously, stuff about Gordon and the, the tensions there. And he, when he was thanking Sh- uh, Sharif, all of her support over the years... At least I don't have to worry about her running off with the bloke next door. And it, it showed a, a willingness to laugh at something, which up until that point they'd always sort of try to pretend wasn't going on, the tension between him and Gordon. Well, I, I, the Times will insist that I've mentioned that was Phil Collins's joke. Well, there uh, we are. Have we discussed uh, any jokes not written by Times members of staff? <laughs> <laughs> what would happen to British politics <laughs> if the Times uh, building suddenly collapsed? Well, that slightly brings me on to the fact that all of the references we've been uh, using, partly because of the people that you worked for, uh, but um, the current crop of politicians and party leaders, it, not a wash with Gag Smiths. Oh, t- Farron can tell a joke. Tim Farron. Yeah. I, uh, Tim Farron is a joke. Oh, uh, Tim Farron can tell a joke. I'll tell you, I can, I can, prove, I can prove this. Um, and he can do it in short order. And it also speaks to the fact that, you know, those jokes that have been vetoed by senior members of, of staff. The only time I've ever been able to use any was um, Conference 2010, I think, and um, Charles Kennedy, God rest his soul, got, got stuck on a train. Uh, and so at short notice, uh, Tim Farron had to uh, step into um, the breach. So he had 30 minutes to write a, a, a conference <laughs> speech. And three people, including myself were dragged into a room and just said give him some jokes and you're obviously just going to go well all those ones that were vetoed uh, uh, before and uh, it ended with a rather torturous analogy about him sw- swimming across uh, Lake Windermere uh, amongst a load of blue scum which in this case were the Tories but uh, the, wow. uh, it's the way you tell them <laughs> if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers with Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. But in fact, my slightly lame joke about Tim Fowler then, um, but David Cameron, when asked what was your favourite political joke, had said Nick Clegg, and this then came back to haunt him. (laughs) in the famous Rose Garden. Uh, it's interesting, you know, because one of the things about when David David Cameron, particularly when he started, and I was giving him jokes, he'd often veto them because they weren't, they were counter-strategic. Okay? <laughs> um, w- William would kind of like go with them anyway. Um, but he, you know, he, if you met a joke that was implied, for example, that Labour had no policies, and David's <laughs> idea was to say that Labour had a lot of policies, but they were wrong, um, he wouldn't go with the joke, however funny it was, if it wasn't strategic. And he was right, actually, mm. by the way, because you can get carried away with trying to make jokes you think of something funny and then you begin to think that that's actually all that really matters about it but actually it doesn't you're trying to convey a political message or make a really uh, good political point and and that's more important than the gag well that's like when i first started working for harriet so i had been a stand-up comedian then i started working for harriet and i was not allowed to do any more stand-up comedy it was like the fun stops here and i um tried to persuade her to do some jokes when we first started working together and she was really against it because she was like you know i don't think it's my thing and also she's really into quality so she was like jokes are unfair because there's always a but at the end of the joke there's always someone you're picking on and and, and i don't think that's right then <laughs> i was like, like a white laugh i know and then i was like go on let's just try it and then she tried a few and got laughs so then our entire meetings would be like let's have the gags now basically so i think it i think once politicians figure out how they can do it and what kind of voice is authentic to them they do get a taste for it i think they do quite like it they start putting more attention and focus onto it and what about heckles because heckles are interesting they're particularly at pmqs and i'm not sure they ever really work on tv because they're not often picked up my favorite or it wasn't really it was a counter heckle was tony blair had this amazing technique of pretending to hear a point made on the tory benches so he once said which country in the european union does such and such i forgot what it was and then and then he pretended to hear someone say norway (laughs) <laughs> and he said, Norway, Norway's not even in the European Union. And that brought absolutely brought the house down. So he had this fantastic technique of a sort of almost like a counter heckle. He'd pick up a heckle that wasn't there and turn it into a brilliant joke. I mean, that's that's that sort of top level stand up yeah, technique. Isn't that's it? what I do. I mean, not Norway, obviously. I'm not doing like, <laughs> Norway material in my stand up. I'm like, you know, here's the thing. Well, no, no, it's very, you know, it's right. My Gibraltar material killed yeah, last yeah, night. Absolutely. I mean, you know. it brought the house down. But I think some of, there's some really great heckles from the back benches as well so remember when Cameron was having all that stuff with that horse you know Rebecca Brooks's horse I think Kevin Brennan and Stephen Pan from Labour backbenchers just were going nay <laughs> so immature but so funny there was one recently where um, Jeremy Corbyn was describing how he'd been to a very worthy meeting of European socialists in Brussels one of whom said to me And it completely brought that. And obviously, <laughs> Corbyn, being the quick-witted thinker on his feet that he is, just sort of pulled one of his very disappointed geography teacher faces and just carried on weeping <laughs> well, out. I remember an SDP comrade, somebody making an incredibly pompous speech about how the SDP and the Liberals should have a have peace together. And he said, you know, you're all behaving like children. I know how children behave. I used to run a Punch and Judy show. And someone shouted out, oh, no, you <laughs> And, of course, the whole audience, that was it. He'd lost it completely. <laughs> Um, one of the one of the things that really struck me was um, Je- David Cameron's last PMQs, which sort of turned into just a sort of stand-up 
routine for half an hour. He just had one gag after another. He seemed incredibly relaxed. It, he'd always been good at the dispatch box. It was sort of confirmation of his ability at doing that. Um, he did a whole... In fact, you were talking about Monty Python. He did a whole whiff about Jeremy Corbyn being like the um, the Black Knight from the Holy Grail. Yeah. Uh, he's been kicked so many times, but he keeps saying, keep going, it's only a flesh wound. But it was as much about the delivery, because he is quite a funny guy, and it seemed authentic. And the, actually, maybe the worst thing is somebody who's not funny trying it. Is that a fair... Yeah, definitely, but you, you're still going to be expected to be funny. So Aisha's right. You've got to find the, the the style that works for them. You know, some politicians are going to be able to tell sort of more rambling, discursive jokes. Some people are going to be able to do one-liners. I mean, Theresa May, you know, is not a funny. I don't know her very well, but she doesn't strike me as being gag a minute company. Um, but she's she has done a couple of decent jokes at, at PMQs. I mean, it's not hard with Corbyn as your as your opponent. There's plenty of material to work with, but she sticks within the boundaries of of what she knows. She's not going to start doing riffs on Monty Python, for example. But when she has done, the ones that have really worked, the ones that have spoken, uh, had a bit of truth in them, so the remind you of anyone yeah. riff, was actually good, but it, it wasn't a completely over-the-top, you know, jonglers-style set-up and punchline. And it had a political truth but to it. I think, without any question, that the worst joke of the last 12 months in politics, and maybe longer than that, is the irony lady. Yeah. <laughs> and not only was that uh, not the Iron Lady, but not, not only was that a bad joke, but it, it was one of those jokes which a bit like um, you know a sort of somebody's reunion album. It kind of begins to undermine the form itself. Um, <laughs> when you try to think of a letter, a, a political joke, it's impossible not then to think of that joke, how bad it was, and wonder whether you hadn't just proposed to repeat it. Uh, it was so terrible. Aisha, how do you feel now looking down? Well, part of the politics, because you've been on the podcast before to talk about the politics of Jerry Corbyn. But um, is there part of you that wishes you could be writing jokes for him? No. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Um, I feel like, look, I mean, there's so many emotions that one goes through when you watch PMQs and particularly watching... Boredom is one of them, isn't it? Yeah, boredom, you know, trying to, the, the sort of will to keep yourself living and breathing and all that sort of thing. But... I think what what I feel sad about PMQs is as much as people complain about it and say it's all punch and duty politics, it is important and it's a really, really important moment for the parliamentary week. And I think being able to demonstrate that you have got a bit of wit about you is really, really important. And it doesn't have to be prescriptive. As you said, it doesn't have to be like a jongler stand-up routine. But the, the reason why humour is important is because underlying it is an intelligence and there is the it's often the most powerful way to disarm somebody to make a really kind of pointed political argument better than lots of sort of pompous words and things and i think what me and so many ex labor colleagues feel is that corbyn has a lot of material to go on every week and I think someone said last week it was a great thing you know when presented with an open goal he'll sort of be like Diane hand me the badminton racket <laughs> and it's just a shame uh, you're absolutely right and, uh, and PMQs is a much more diminished institution in the political way I'm mean, not sure it makes the blindest bit of difference to uh, a huge amount of things but there were, there were definitely fewer jokes thank you so much for coming and sharing your good and bad stories Aisha we can't let you go there without just, it, Get your plug in. You are on tour. I am on tour. It's the political comeback. It's the comedy comeback no one wanted, myself <laughs> included. But that's what happens when you lose an election really badly. So um, I'm going on tour. It's um, called State of the Nation. It's all about politics, power and how we lost the plot. I start on the 18th to the 22nd of April at the Soho Theatre and then I'm going around the country for 25 dates. And you've got a website. Can people find, how can people find your yes, tour dates? Yes, um, 
www.rbmcomedy.co.uk. Terrific. James, you're now um, fighting the good fight for open Britain. Uh, lots, yeah. of, lots of gags there. Right, it's, it's a hugely humorous topic. We're, we'll uh, have to get Brexit. you on another time to get all of your customs union material. <laughs> and uh, obviously, you can read Danny uh, every Wednesday and Saturday in the Times. Uh, but for now, uh, for me, Matt Cholly, for Aisha, Danny, and James, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.